coming up on this episode of Inside the Epicenter. Most denominations and most Christian leaders actually don't understand God's plan and purpose and heart for Israel and the Jewish people. But within evangelicalism, there's even a percentage who don't see it, don't get it. And among young evangelicals, that number is rising. Hi, and welcome to Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg, a podcast of the Joshua Fund, a ministry dedicated to blessing Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus. I'm Carl Muller, Executive Director of the Joshua Fund, and I'm joined today by Joel Rosenberg in Jerusalem. And Joel, we're talking today about something that you've had some interesting conversations on and something that might be really concerning to evangelicals who love Israel, and that is the shifting perceptions of Israel in younger evangelicals. Can you talk to us a little bit? What's going on with that? Yeah. Happy to do it. Uh, So in the last episode, we talked about why evangelicals are so passionate about Israel. uh, And we acknowledged in that 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 not every evangelical is. And of course, in the broader span of Christendom, most denominations and most Christian leaders actually don't understand God's plan and purpose and heart for Israel and the Jewish people. But within evangelicalism, there's even a percentage who don't see it, don't get it. And among young evangelicals, that number is rising. Okay. Mm. Now, in 2017, the Joshua Fund helped fund a major benchmark sweeping survey of American evangelical Christians. We did that in partnership with a group called the Alliance for the Peace of Jerusalem, a group of theologians and Bible scholars and teachers that uh, that I'm part of and helped found. And we did it with uh, Lifeway Research, which is the, the research division of the Southern Baptists. So we wanted it to be a legit, scientific, serious study. We wanted it to be a double sample, meaning having twice as many as you normally would have so that you had the most confidence that the numbers were accurate and the lowest percentage of margin of error. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to have that large sample also because we wanted to understand what young evangelicals think about Israel, about Palestinians, about the peace process, about evangelism, a number of issues. But we needed a sample size large enough that the sample size just of people, let's say under 30 or 35, would be large enough that it was legit, like it was a serious yeah. you know, uh, study. And now there has just been, four years later, a new study that just came out in May of 2021 um, looking at specifically at young evangelicals. And so let me give you just a couple of quick thoughts, and then we can go into details, but a quick thought mm-hmm. from both. The number one takeaway of both surveys when it comes to young evangelicals, young evangelicals are moving away from the strong pro-Israel position of their parents and their grandparents. Mm. Okay. Mm. Now, in the survey we did in 2017, at that point, we who had commissioned the survey and funded it 
we're going in with the premise that anecdotally we were hearing that young people were turning against Israel. And we had plenty of anecdotal experience in our own lives and other um, you know, things we were reading and things we were seeing on campuses. And in the 2017 study, we didn't find – we did not find that young evangelicals were turning against Israel. Every question that we asked from multiple mm-hmm. angles about you – know, that, that basically were designed to elicit – are you really against Israel now? Are you opposed to Israel? Are, do you have a terrible feeling about Israel? All those was the answer was no. Hmm. But something was happening compared to parents and grandparents. And what was happening? Young evangelicals were moving into the I don't know camp. Hmm. Okay? Where the parents and grandparents would say by 70, 80 percent. I love Israel. God has a plan for Israel. I'm totally with Israel. Yes, they make some mistakes, but we still – we're with them. We pray for them. We want – 70, 80 percent. Young people were like – not they, they weren't saying, oh, there's 40, 50 percent against, but they were moving into the 20, 30, 40, 50 percent. I don't know what I think wow. camp. Hmm. We released that study in December of 2017 at the National Press Club in Washington, and I was part of the panel – that was discussing it. And one of the points I made was, at the moment, this is not a crisis, but it's a problem. Mm-hmm. Because if you extrapolate these numbers out 10, 15, 20 years, you're going to have a group of people who don't know, don't care, or turn against the people and the state of Israel. Yeah. Now, four years later, this new study, and we'll have the links in the show notes and some of the specific numbers, but yeah. just – Quickly, I would just say this, on the one hand, the new survey confirms that most young evangelicals are in the I don't know camp. I don't see a lot of hostility yet, but Mm -hmm. I do see growth of young evangelicals saying, no, I'm not for Israel. I'm for the Palestinians or I'm for a Palestinian state or I'm for a -hmm. series of other things. Now – here in Israel, that's being interpreted already as we've lost or we are losing young evangelicals. They are turning away from us and towards the Palestinians. That is one way to read the numbers, but I, I'm not yet ready to say that that's where we are. Yeah. And we'll talk about it in more detail, but I'll just say this. I think that what we're seeing is not that people are turning against Israel. What they're saying is I think we also need to care for Palestinians. We saw that in the previous survey, and of course at the Joshua Fund, we believe this, and so we've been talking about it for a long time. But I right. think we're seeing even more evidence now, four years later, that if people who love Israel are not talking about loving Palestinians or other Arabs too, you're mm-hmm. going to lose young evangelicals who either theologically – don't understand the whole plan or do, but they feel something's unfair. Yeah. So what you're saying is, is that the numbers are seeming to say that as young evangelicals move into the I don't know camp, they're increasingly less convinced by what older evangelicals have been taught from Scripture and maybe more influenced by what they see on social media, on on the news and in various other sources. And, you know, maybe just conjecture here, 
we're both uh, parents of young evangelicals. In talking with even some of my kids and their friends, their hearts are drawn towards the suffering of the Palestinian people. And sometimes maybe that wins, yeah, as they should be. But perhaps that's what's drawing them away from uh, support of Israel because they're not given an alternative picture. Is that kind of what you're saying these numbers are, are showing? I believe so. There, I, I will concede that there is a very real possibility that we're starting to see young evangelicals turn against Israel. I don't think that's conclusive from the numbers, but I think that's a real, a real issue. But I think at the heart of it is there's a risk of misinterpreting these particular numbers. What these numbers are saying is mostly that young evangelicals haven't thought about this. They're not being taught from the pulpit about God's plan and purpose and heart for Israel and the Jewish people. They are not comfortable with what they're hearing from Christian Zionist leaders. It feels too one-sided to them. It seems unfair to them. It's not balanced in their view. Or they just... They either they've thought about it and, the, and they've concluded they, they're making some early conclusions, or they haven't mostly thought about it, and it just feels like well, if Israel has a state, then the Palestinians should have a state. And and again, we're not taking a position here. The Joshua Fund does not take a position on how this conflict should be resolved. Yes, we do believe that God has a plan. In, you know, in, in the millennial kingdom. He's going to rebuild the eschatological state of Israel in the exact massive dimensions that the Bible promises. But the Joshua Fund doesn't take a position on how should that work out right now. And I don't think it's productive for a ministry like ours, at least, to try to solve a problem that nobody's been able to solve for 70 plus years. But I will say that just because a, a young person, young evangelical, says, I, I, I want a Palestinian state, and that number is so much higher than their parents or their grandparents, it's too simplistic to say, well, that's mm. being hostile to Israel. A lot of Israelis, most Israelis believe in a two-state solution. Mm-hmm. They don't think it's possible because of the, what's going on in Gaza and going on in the West Bank and the Palestinian Authority and for lots of other reasons. They're very cynical about it. But, they, but if you ask most Israelis, like, Yes, the best case scenario is two lands for two people. So to say that a young evangelical supports a Palestinian state is not evidence that they're anti-Semitic or Mm anti-Israel. But – and I think it mostly – for most people, it just seems like – that just seems – yeah, that seems good. Like we have – you know, Israel has one. The Palestinians should have another. And so it it requires drilling into what are they being taught, if anything, and are they listening – to what they're being taught, and are they absorbing and internalizing what they're being taught from the style of the teaching, from the approach of the media, in Christian media, whatever? How can they believe if they haven't heard, mm-hmm. to cite Romans 10? <laughs> that's about the gospel, but it's still a biblical truth. How can anybody believe what the Bible teaches about something unless they've heard it? And then how can they hear it if nobody's saying it? And how can people say it if they're not sent to say it, encouraged to say it? Mm-hmm. And then how are they saying it, right? Jesus said in John twelve forty nine, a, a verse that's one of my key verses in my life and should be for all communicators of any kind. The Father commands me what to say and how to say it. Yeah. 
Yeah. You can speak truth yeah. and a person cannot hear it and you can blame them. Well, I preached the gospel to them and they didn't listen. Yeah. But did you hear your tone? Did you express love, forgiveness, compassion? Or were you like, you believe in Jesus or you're going to hell? Yeah. That's true. <laughs> yeah. It's rarely the way a person is able to receive the message. That is so true, Joel. And I think so much of this particular conversation about young evangelicals has to do with the tone and the approach to the questions and and the formulation of those questions about what's happening. I think it is a rejection of that overstatement and that bipolar looking at these things into a place of saying, hey, it seems fair for both Palestinians and Israelis to have a state, to have a two-state solution. I like your highlighting that, that most Israelis support a two-state solution. I don't think that's spoken about enough. But what most are some of the Congress do? Most, right. most people, most people who think about the conflict at all, believe this. But I will say, Carl, it'd be interesting. And, and from looking, I just got the numbers last night, the actual data. Um, and I think what we should do is have the scholar that did the study from the University of North Carolina. I think we should get oh, him yeah. onto the podcast. Let's let's let him walk us through the numbers so we're hearing yeah. it and people can really go, wow. Let's drill in, then we can press him on some things. But I think the number one reason that young evangelicals under the age of 30 or maybe 35, I can't remember, uh, are not understanding God's heart for Israel and his plan and therefore are seen as turning away is not primarily because they hear it from people that they're like, oh, I don't listen to that guy. That guy's an idiot or, or it sounds screechy or too one-sided. That's true, but I think the main reason is people aren't being taught the Bible. Mm. Or the pastor is teaching the Bible, the young person is not coming yeah. to the sermon, right? Or he's coming to the church, but he's going to youth group. He's not going to the sermon. So the pastor might be doing everything right in content and tone. The young person's not hearing it. Right, And the yeah. youth group's probably not talking about it because why would you talk about God's heart for Israel at youth group right? or the young adults or Sunday school classes? So, so mostly I think this is a Romans 10 problem. How can they believe if they have not heard? Yeah. I was sitting with um, a very prominent pastor whom I have the deepest respect for, uh, and we were talking about it. And, and this is a pastor, a theologian in the United States who loves the people of Israel, love the Jewish people, believes in Jewish evangelism, believes in blessing Israel. But he is not convinced that current Israel has anything to do with Bible mm. prophecies. It's just he hasn't really thought about it so much, but he has thought about enough to conclude, I don't know what I think, but I don't really think the current modern state of Israel has anything to do with the Bible prophecies. He's friendly. He's not mm. hostile. I would say that's a big piece. Now, if you just took his ministry, and I don't want to get into him, you know, maybe we'll have him on the show someday. We'll, but, but my point is there are many pastors, that is their view, which is I don't really have a view, but if you pressed me, it's probably that I don't really think it's true. Yeah. So the thing there is they could be teaching everything just great from the pulpit, evangelism, missions, heart for the poor, Racial uh, reconciliation, justice, uh, every topic, heaven, <laughs> uh, discipleship, uh, marriage, pro-life. But if they're not <laughs> dealing with 
Israel yeah. and the arc of history from Genesis right through the New Testament, it's a big hole, and we shouldn't be surprised that some of the greatest Bible teachers and pastors in America, they're just not talking about the topic. And when it comes up, oh, that's too political. If you talk mm-hmm. about Israel, then you're siding with Trump or you're siding with Biden or whomever, and they don't want to go there because they want to teach the Bible and not – they don't want to get into politics. I respect that. But Israel is in the Bible, and if we don't teach it, we can't expect people to get it. And there are real-world implications of people not understanding God's love for Jews. This is not a – well, it doesn't really matter. It does because if you don't understand that God loves Jews and has a plan for Jews, two things are possible. I'm not saying they're definite, but two things are possible. One, you will not have a heart at all to tell Jewish people about Jesus. Right. You just think that's not a thing because I don't think God even loves Jews. I think God's done with the mm. Jews or whatever. It may be fuzzy in your head, but you're not proactive. You're not doing Romans 1.16 where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Right. For it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for the Greek. If you go with that verse, you will realize the Jewish people are a priority for God to hear the good news that our Messiah has come. They may not listen. They may not obey. They may not say yes, but they have to hear it. But that's that's one implication. People will just be not interested in Jewish ministry. But the other implication is actual outright anti-Semitism, that if God doesn't love Jews – if God's done with the Jews, I? why should I love them? And, you know, by the way, they're treating Palestinians unfairly, and, and the list goes on, and then you can get bitter in your heart, and this can evidence itself in very ugly ways. Yeah. And, you and know, it has I, I, throughout history. I, I, absolutely it has, and, and, and I want to talk more about that. We're going to take a quick break right now. And um, we'll get back to that and, and what our perspective should be and what we can do about that. This is Carl Muller, Executive Director of the Joshua Fund. Scripture tells us that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Would you take a moment right now to pray for our staff at the Joshua Fund as they work to bless Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus. We're in a battle against the evil one, and your prayers make all the difference. Hey, Joel, I was really struck by the fact that, you know, there are implications, as we talked about in the last segment, for these shifting viewpoints. And I'd love to, first of all, define what perhaps a balanced view of Israel and Palestinians uh, looks like. I know in the Joshua Fund, we call it blessing Israel and her neighbors. Um, what does that balanced perspective look like in your view? And then we'll talk about a little bit later about how, how we can address that and how we might be able to do some things about that. Sure. Well, let's summarize that last point, and that is bad theology leads to bad results. Hmm. It's very rare that bad theology has a neutral effect. Mm. What we do is a product of what we believe. Mm. And 
bad seeds in the soil of our heart are going to bear bad fruit. It may not immediately, right? Trees take time to bear fruit. Uh, but if you plant a bad seed, you're going to get bad fruit. And so yeah. this is an important thing. And, and, it, and I say this in part to pastors, ministry leaders, seminary professors, Bible college teachers, and so forth, Bible study leaders, small group leaders, home fellowship leaders. If your theology on something so important to God as, as God's heart for Israel and the Jewish people, which permeates the entire Bible, if you don't understand that or have a negative or unhealthy view, it's going to manifest itself. It's going to have – you're going to reap bad fruit from sure. it. So that's part of the Joshua Fund mission is to educate Christians – in North America, around the world, what is God's heart for Israel and the Jewish people? And, and what's his heart for the neighbors? It's not a zero-sum game. It's not either or. We often say, right, it's God loves – it's both and. He loves both. He has a certain specific plan for Israel and the Jewish people that, you know, but that's because he sovereignly decided to, right? He could have chosen mm -hmm. the Japanese. He could have chosen the Brazilians or the Canadians or – Portuguese, I guess that's almost the same as Brazil, but whomever. Go down that road. Uh, <laughs> we'll have to name every, Kenyans, every people. He decided to choose the Hebrew people, right? Abraham was a, was a descendant of somebody named Ivri, which in Hebrew was Hebrew. Uh, <laughs> and he wasn't even Jewish. Uh, people don't realize that uh, Abraham wasn't Jewish. Neither was Jacob. Uh, neither was Isaac or Jacob. Jacob had a son named Judah. Yeah. And Judah is where we get Judaism from. It's where we get the Jewish people from because most of the rest of the tribes got wiped out. So anyway, the point is um, God just sovereignly decided to do something through this people, including give us the Messiah. So anyway, there was a few points I wanted to say up front. But, but if you could reformulate your question, I think you were talking about uh, what do we do about it. Yeah, well, I mean, I think this balance. I did lose my of, point. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> sometimes those those wandering trails are the best trails to wander. Well, I'm on, a wandering so. Jew. Sometimes, you know, it's <laughs> part of my uh, it's part of my tribe. It is, in fact, important to connect all these dots. You know, we connect theology with our actions. We connect the dots of the Bible with what we understand to be true about God's plan for Israel and plan for all people and. A balanced view, the, the view that the Joshua Fund holds of blessing Israel and her neighbors, and frankly, I would add to that, her enemies, because that's the Jesus position on being a blessing, has to be kind of brought in theologically through the church. It has to be a place where average, evangelical, young people, and old people for that matter, find ways to connect those dots, right? So if Jesus loves all people and he has a special plan for our neighbors and our enemies in terms of love, and the Bible is very clear about Israel, you know, that balanced view needs to be expressed theologically and in the pulpits of the country. So um, how would you propose to help this conversation forward? What What is it that you could offer to kind of help guide us in that direction well one of the things that that lynn and i decided to do as we felt prompted by the holy spirit in um 2000 
late 2005, early 2006, was start the Joshua Fund. Yeah, there's lots of different ministries that operate in this part of the world, but why did we think there needed to be another one? Well, we, well, the simplest reason is because we felt the Holy Spirit was telling us to do it. But what would make this ministry distinctive? And you've described some of it, which is, you know, it's, it's not either or, it's both and. We love Israel and her neighbors. We want to bless Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus. That is right in our motto. That's our mission statement. So we can't run from the point, which is we have to help people on both sides of the aisle, to use a political term. <laughs> That's difficult to do, and most ministries don't do it. I'm not being critical. I'm just saying it's very difficult to focus on Israel. It's challenging enough to work about Israel and the Jewish people. And there's wonderful ministries that do it. And there's also other wonderful ministries that focus exclusively on Arabs or Muslims. Very few try to do both because it's hard. <laughs> um, and, you know, I you know, point in case. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but we're mandated internally. We can't get away from this. Like this is this is what we have to do. So that's one. The second thing to me and, and to Lynn was we've got to care for the poor. We've got to care for those who are vulnerable in society. We've got to care for widows. Mm. We've got to care for orphans. We've got to care for, for victims of war and terrorism. Why? Because the Bible says to. Because Jesus told us to. Because Jesus modeled this for us. And he was modeling it to be a model. It wasn't that just Jesus wanted to feed hungry people or that he wanted to heal those who were sick or that he commanded his people to provide clothing and water and whatever food and things. It's not just that he crossed the river Jordan to go minister in the land that we now call the kingdom of Jordan. It's not just that he even went up into the country we call today Lebanon. He did all those things. It's not just that he sent one of his servants to go minister on the road to Gaza. He did all these things. He did this for its own sake, but he did it as a model so we would do it too. And Samaria, and, and, yeah. Yeah, and so even in the, the in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, his mandate for taking the gospel to the whole world, he says, you know, you will be my witnesses. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, he gives you power to be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem, where you yep. are now. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Judea. In Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. Now, Judea and Samaria today is called by the world the West Bank. Mm-hmm. But the biblical name for it from the Old Testament and the New is Judea and Samaria. So why is that interesting? It's interesting because you can love Israel, but you also need to love the people in Judea and Samaria. And who are those people? Well, those would be Palestinians controlled mostly, not exclusively, by the Palestinian Authority. Right. Going back to the issue of widows and orphans and others, you know, the Bible commands us and Jesus modeled for us, you need to show people that God loves them and that you love God enough to obey me in these areas. He, he said, if you love me, you'll obey me. So what is he asking us to do? Well, among the things is go care for people who who have nothing and, and who have no voice. Mm-hmm. And if they're, you know... You've been given much, so you have a lot of responsibility to whom much has been given, much is required. So we've got to do those things. And, and I will say this goes down to young people. 
the evangelical and, and broader Christian church in North America, let's say, or in the West, has made some errors. Let's just be honest. One of the errors was the evangelical church for many years, I would, you could say a, a century or more, decided that our job is to teach the Bible and to share the gospel and make disciples. Anything other than that, caring for the poor, running soup kitchens, all kinds of things, that's the social gospel. That's what people do when they don't want to teach the word, where they, when they're getting all liberal and mm. they are trying to, oh, mushy, they just want to care for people, but they don't want to care for people's souls. Now, to be fair, many evangelicals are the ones that started the soup kitchens and started right. uh, you know, hospitals and did all – I'm not saying that all evangelicalism was against doing this. But there was a split philosophically, if maybe not theologically, but mm-hmm. philosophically where for a while – you know, just use one simple example. Catholics were doing a lot of social services and evangelical Protestants were like, well, that's – but they're not preaching the gospel the way it should be preached. We will. We're, we're focused on the word. But that's not an either-or equation either. And I think young people are very driven by – they want to touch people's lives. They are mm-hmm. idealistic driven. When I see a cynic, a young cynic, I believe that cynics are burned optimists. Mm. Let me say that again. Yeah, that's a good When one. you see a cynic, what you're really seeing is a burned optimist. Mm. They believe in something better. They believe in something bigger. But it's been they, – they've been burned so many times by people who didn't live it mm. that even if they can't articulate it exactly, they just don't believe that people who love Jesus love other people. <laughs> and again, even if they can't – fully articulate it or write it out in an op-ed or in a, in, a, in a position paper, they're like, I'm not following a group of people that don't just care for the needy, who don't care for people. I just don't see it. I hear blah, 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 blah. They're all preaching, preaching. And, you know, and I'm just saying that's a way many young people look at the church and they see hypocrisy and they see mm-hmm. sin and they see pastors who are falling and other things. True. But the lack of compassion – the lack of doing what Jesus said to care for those who are never going to believe in Jesus. Mm. But he loved them anyway. He, he fed people who weren't going to follow him. He healed ten lepers. Only one came back to worship him. He still healed them. So I believe, and the Joshua one believes, that we need to show people the love of Jesus. This is winsome for people who don't yet know the Lord. But it's also winsome, to be honest, for young people who do know the Lord and are saying, yeah, that's the way I think Christianity is supposed to be lived out. I, I want to be part of that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, part of the excitement that I had in coming to the Joshua Fund was that unique placement of our message in the hyperpolarized world of either or. Um, the fact that Jesus modeled throughout his ministry a physical engagement with people who were different, who who had different viewpoints. I love the, uh, the reality that Jesus empowered his church to do the exact same thing he did, to be witnesses, to bring hope and healing to those folks all around the world. Yeah, and, and, in, this first, part, and in this part of the world that yes. is so, so traumatized by war and terror 
and poverty and suffering, right? I think the Middle East may have the largest share of that. Yeah. Um, others compete against us. Uh, certainly Africa, Asia. I mean, look, everyone ever. It's not a competition you want to be but, with. But we yes. have, you know, when it comes to war and terror, it's sort of the right. gift that keeps on giving over here. Mm-hmm. And if you go and start preaching the gospel to people who are living in rubble or whose daughter has been blown up by a suicide bomber or has lost a son or daughter who was a soldier trying to defend their country in a war, it's very difficult to start by telling them that God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their lives and Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life and no one can come to him except, you know, to come to the Father except through him. All true. But Jewish people, uh, not Muslims too, but Jewish people, we have a big block of ice around our heart <laughs> when it comes to the good news message. We, yeah. You're going to have to prove to us that you love us. We're not listening to you, by and large, unless we believe you love us, even if we never believe what you are teaching. Yeah. And that, in a sense, God, in his wonderful, sweet, sovereign way— is sort of requiring his church in this region to do what the Bible said to do in the first place. If you want to lead people, you need to serve them. Yes. Right? Don't lord it over people. Hey, you know, and that can, you know, it's not like we're governing this country or the neighbors, but if you come in like, hey, we're from America, we're, we're Christians, we're here to help, you know, and, you know, line up and, and, and fill our stadiums and we will tell you the gospel. Look, God has blessed people like Billy Graham and others to do that. It can't happen here. No one's going to rent you a stadium. And if you if they do, no one's going to come. Yeah. What they need to see is unconditional love. That's the secret, Carl. That if mm-hmm. you take all that I say and you sum it up into mm-hmm. one word, one one phrase, the message, the key is unconditional love. Amen. We will serve you. We will feed you. We will visit you. We will do everything we can to bless you in all of its meanings, even if you never say yes to Jesus. That's unconditional love. And very few people know what it's like to have unconditional love. Mm. Very few people have ever experienced. They've never seen, most people have never seen it, certainly in this part of the world. And it's very hard to be against somebody who's showing you unconditional love. If they think you're giving them food in order to convert you, they're, they're going to say, I'm work. starving, but I don't want your food. Right. If they, and you can take that, you know, if you set up a, a hospital and say, we'll care for you, but you're just doing that to force us to get a Bible and force us to say yes to Jesus and, that whole thing of coercion on the road to conversion, that's oh. insane. Yeah. It doesn't work. It's yeah. anti-biblical. Jesus never did it, nor should his followers. Yeah. Unconditional love is the key to the Christian life. Whether it works or not is entirely in God's hands. Yeah. But there is no other way. And I think young people at the heart they do not see enough unconditional love and servant-heartedness from Christian leaders, and therefore they're bailing on the faith or on some of the other messages that we might be trying to teach them. 
Boy, I couldn't agree more with that. And, you know, as I said before, you know, we both are very up close and personal with some young evangelicals. And the word that comes out to me, you said the unconditional love, and it's got to be authentic. It can't be coercive or manipulative. That is what I think transcends this conversation from one side or another. And I think the beautiful thing about the Joshua Fund, the way you and Lynn conceived it and founded it, was to be an authentic conduit of the unconditional love of Jesus to Israel and her neighbors to transect that political divide and say, we're not going to act like the world. Jesus said the same thing. He says, you know, you've heard it said, but I say to you, he always gave a different view. And if we follow close after him, at the Joshua Fund, I think we're going to look a lot like what Jesus did, which was to go to the Samaritan woman, who at the time were seen as the essentially the Palestinians of his day, and would go to the, the house of, of Israel and would speak convictingly to them as well as to all people. And of course, in the Great Commission, as you, you highlighted, start in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, today known as the West Bank, and the uttermost parts of the earth. I said, Joel, you're at the starting point in Jerusalem, and I'm sitting here in California at the uttermost parts of the earth. And that that sounds kind of strange to Western ears, but that's exactly the way Jesus said for us to focus. Um, That's right. And I would just say that um, another thing that Jesus said, right, we always go back to what did Jesus say? What does the Bible say? Jesus said, They will know that you are my disciples because of your love for one another. That's right. So it's not just unconditional love for people who don't yet know him. It's loving our brothers and sisters, uh, if they're Jewish brothers and sisters here in the land, known as Messianic believers, or our Israeli Arab evangelical brothers and sisters, and our Palestinian Arab Evangelical brothers and sisters, you know, the Palestinian Christians who are born again, they're struggling even with the term evangelical because evangelical has become so known as pro-Israel that if you're a Palestinian Arab, you know, you're not trying to start a war with Israel. You're not, you know, you're not part of Hamas or any other terrorist organization, whatever. But but just the term is becoming so known as pro-Israel that it's, it's difficult for our Palestinian evangelical brothers and sisters But do we love them? Do we serve them? Do we ask them, how can we serve you? How can we encourage you? And, you know, there's when we started the Joshua Fund and we early on, we didn't know how we didn't have relationships with the Palestinian evangelical community. It's not that we didn't want it, but we didn't know how to we didn't know where the bridge was and we didn't know how to cross it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And but we were praying and we wanted to be faithful and we, we and the lord then led us to a dear brother who is the pastor of a church in ramallah which is the capital of the palestinian authority he is also the essentially the president or the chairman of the palestinian evangelical council which oversees all of the evangelical churches and the parachurch ministries in the west bank and gaza i, I was speaking at a conference in jerusalem called Back to Jerusalem. And it was about, look, Western believers love the Bible and they love Jesus, but they're not always helping local believers bring the gospel from the ends of the earth back to Jerusalem. Now, this was an Arab Christian conference, but they asked me to come speak. 
and I was very touched. I was very moved, and I said yes. And afterwards, this pastor from Ramallah invited me to come to lunch just to get to know me better. Apparently, what I'd said hadn't offended him, or or <laughs> maybe he was overcoming his own, you know, frustrations with me. But but he asked me to come spend ha- time with him for lunch, and I did. And then he asked a colleague, a Joshua Fund colleague, and I. Would you come to Ramallah? I'd like to show you the orphanage that we run, uh, the humanitarian relief work that we do. I'd love you to, to, to teach at our Thursday night fellowship. I was like, wow, that's that. – he wasn't asking for money. He wasn't asking for help. He just like, I, just, I want you to see what we do and what God's doing. I, I was actually a little nervous because yeah. I had all these memories of Ramallah being – the home of Yasser Arafat and Ariel Sharon, the late prime minister of Israel, is sending tanks into. Oh my gosh! I just had all these images of warfare in, in Ramallah, but it's not that way now. Anyway, we prayed about it. We said yes. We went, and that began a friendship. He, mm-hmm. in time, invited me to come and meet with the council, and we did this in Bethlehem at a, at a, at a men's prayer breakfast that they had one day. And I got to tell you. <laughs> There were many people in that room that were not happy that I was there, mm. and they were honest about it, which I'm not critical of. They, In their mind, I'm Jewish. I'm an evangelical. I'm a Zionist. I'm pro-Israel. I used to work 20 years ago for Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who's the post yeah. child of what they don't want, right. what they don't like. Well, how dare you come here? That was the feeling. Mm. But I confess to them preemptively, listen – I have not built a relationship with you all. When you say in various media, conferences, and so forth, the evangelicals in the West, they love Israel, but they don't care about their brothers and sisters. They don't even know we exist. They don't know anything about our lives. They don't pray for us. They don't fund us. They don't help us. They don't don't even come and visit. I said, I'm wrong, and you're right about that. And that's not the same as saying everything that you believe theologically I believe or everything I believe theologically you believe. But it's true I wasn't loving my brothers and sisters. I didn't even know them. So this started a process. And, you know, I'll just say that in the years ahead, they invited us as a council to – for the Joshua one to host a retreat for – Yep. Every Palestinian pastor, ministry leader, and his wife that wanted to come for several days of worship, of prayer, of Bible teaching, they didn't have to do anything. They just they didn't even have to pay anything. They just come and be ministered to. The fact that they asked me to do that is kind of crazy to them as well. They still are like, <laughs> why you know why you but. And I'm not saying we're the only people doing it. Don't, don't, please don't. I, I don't want people to hear me. I'm just saying this is one of our ways of serving yeah. our brothers and sisters. And I think over time, you know, God has given me and our team an opportunity to know more Palestinians in general, much less Palestinian Christians, than most pro-Israel Christians ever get to meet. Yeah. And this is a witness to the Muslims as well, as well as to our Israeli believers. Many Israeli believers have never met a Palestinian believer. Yeah. So this is not going to solve every problem. I'm not talking about there – are, there are no keys or silver bullets. God, that's a bad expression. But there's nothing that's, 
There's nothing but the return of Christ that's going to fix this thing. But we've got to go back to basics and just make ourselves a little list. What did Jesus do? And what is he telling us to do? And are we doing it? And if we're not, Lord, show us how. And the Joshua Fund is a way, I think, for people who say, I want to be a holistic believer. I want to love both sides. I don't know how. I don't know where my money should go. I don't know where my, how to pray. Show me. And that's what one of the things we try to do. Yeah. Well, it's so refreshing, again, to hear that, and especially for, I think, young evangelicals who might be jaded or cynical about uh, the way evangelical relationships to Israel and the Palestinians has been presented. It's so refreshing to hear your and, and Lynn's authentic love in founding the Joshua Fund along those lines. And it's so exciting for me as executive director to know exactly what you're talking about in terms of the intentional work that the Joshua Fund is doing to bless those that are on both sides of this conversation and to be the hands and feet of Jesus in practical ways as well as the gospel. Not that the gospel is not practical, but the idea that the gospel is holistic enough to be practical in terms of feeding people, in terms of ministering and supporting uh, Messianic congregations and Arab-believing congregations. It's a beautiful thing, Joel. Thank you for this. And, and I know we, we mentioned a lot of things in this podcast. We talked about evangelical pastors that we want to have on. Uh, we talked about the statistics and the, the movement of the young evangelicals in their view of Israel and the Palestinians and the ways in which the Joshua Fund can minister and across these bridges and build these bridges and, and bring people back and forth across them between two sides. I want to thank you, Joel, for for this time and for the word that you've shared with us. I'm excited also to say to everyone listening, thank you for listening to this episode of Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg. If you'd like to learn more about the Joshua Fund, you can visit our website at joshuafund.com, and there you can learn about exactly what we're doing in the Middle East to bless Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus and how you can participate in the healing work that we're doing in this critical region. All of the things that we've mentioned, uh, the statistics and various other surveys and things, you can find them in the show notes uh, that are on the podcast page here. We'd love to get you more information on those things. And please, let us know how we can pray for you on our website at joshuafund.com. And again, for Joel Rosenberg, I'm Carl Muller. Thanks for listening to Inside the Epicenter. Hey friend, I'm Brooke McLaughlin, host of the Everyday Prayers Podcast, a ministry of million praying moms. And I'm here to invite you to partner with God for the hearts of your children on the daily. Our goal at Everyday Prayers is to help moms understand and pray God's word. Join us each weekday as we share insights from God's word for today's Christian mom. Tune in to the Everyday Prayers Podcast in your favorite app or by visiting lifeaudio.com.